the flight attendant for something and she kind of promptly ignores him and so forth. And anyway, the whole scene escalates in this kind of ends up him being tased on the plane by the air marshal. And it's kind of a hilarious scene because for any of us that have flown, and I just flew this week, so and, and actually the flights all went well, but for any of us that have flown, though, sometimes it can really, really try your patience, right? Because things just happen um, on a plane. It's been said that good comedy attempts to look at the absurd within our culture that we might laugh at ourselves. The problem is, it seems today that few are willing to laugh. Psychology Today, not a magazine I read or I personally uh, believe in much that they have to say, but back in 2015 Psychology Today announced that anger in our country has become an epidemic. I can't even imagine what they would think today. Oh. If there is an emotion that seems to drive us especially in view of kind of social media and so forth, it is the emotion of anger. David Von Drell, who writes for the Washington Post last year, wrote this. No ignorant remark by a city council member or grade school teacher concerning guns, God or gays is immune to exploitation. No hurtful graffiti scrawled by drunken teenagers is wiped away without a round of internet hand-wringing. The oversupply of controversy is bottomless because some human somewhere is always indulging in a thoughtless blurt and social media seduces us to publish our blurts for all the world to overhear. If I've come to learn anything as I've gotten older is two things. One, I know very little. And secondly, I can have a tendency to kind of buy into all that anger. And ultimately, anger leads to cynicism. Um, for those of you that don't know, our, our, the church that I'm a part of in Birmingham, Reconciler, we have uh, food pantry ministry and one of the things that we do at that food pantry ministry is we bring food to a senior home to um, uh, it's not quite assisted living they basically have apartments kind of like section 8 you know government funded very very low income folks they really don't have uh, you know, they're on very very fixed income you know they basically have their social security some of them might have a little bit more um, and so we bring food there once a month we bring them bags of food and I hate to say it, some of the people there are great, they're wonderful, they, they, they're always glad to see us, we have conversations, sometimes we get to pray with them. Others are bitter. I, I don't know how else to say it. They're kind of angry about everything. They're even angry when we get there because some, one of them might feel they got some, didn't get something somebody else got, even though we try very hard to give everybody kind of the same thing. And I don't say that in judgment towards them, I say that in realizing, coming to realize how easily I can go there. How much kind of that is my tendency. My proposition to you this morning is for Christians, anger and bitterness is simply not an option. It's simply not an option. Now, for many of you, you may know that James's letter, and it's actually one of my favorite books in the Bible, um, 
<laughs> I just finished reading um, a biography about Martin Luther a few months ago. Martin Luther did not like James. He did not like this. In fact, he didn't. He kind of wished it wasn't in the Bible. He actually called it an epistle of straw. He believed it should be burned up. Because he believed that James was talking about somehow working for our salvation. Right? Now, I've looked at several commentaries when I was preparing for this, and what I found out was James's use of the word salvation when he talks about right being doers of the word and not simply hearers of the word and those types of things that James uses, he's not actually talking about our justification. There's nowhere that James argues with the idea that we are justified by faith, that it is what Christ has done for us that saves us. But instead, the word that James uses in the Greek actually translates to the idea of authentication. Right? So we have to authenticate things all of the time to make sure that they're real, don't we? And that's really what James is talking about. He's saying, if we are indeed in Christ, if we have indeed received the Lord Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and have received justification through Him and Him alone, that we should look something different. That we should be different than the world around us. That we should be authentic. And I really believe that's the word that God's been putting on my heart. It's so easy in our society to join this bandwagon of being angry about everything. Sadly, I think social media has really kind of fed that, right? When you talk about things that people tweet and so forth, most of the time they are coming from a position of anger. But I would suggest to you that as Christians, we always and only can come from a position of thanksgiving. And that is vastly different. Amen? Vastly different. James chapter 1 in verse 19, if you would look there first. So we're going to kind of look at uh, the first chapter of James, and then we're going to finish up with the third chapter, which is our reading from this morning in James. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. James is saying, our response should be vastly, vastly different in the world. Our authenticness of what it means to be in Christ should be that of a person who hears first. Is that kind of a problem in our society? Yeah, most of the time people don't want to listen. That's why we act out of anger. Because the minute somebody begins to speak and we have a sense that they might disagree with what we believe, or we have to say... We believe our response should be to defend it. So we're not hearing at all. James is saying, uh, as an authentic Christian, as an authentic believer, first of all, we're not worried about our faith, are we? And we're not worried that we have to prove that the gospel is the truth. The gospel is the truth. And it is its own testimony. Now, there will come a time that we may be asked by the Holy Spirit to say something, but initially our response should be to listen. To listen to others. To slow down. Be slow to speak and slow to anger, James says. Anger will come. 
But it should not be our first response. It should not be our first response. Anger is not the answer, James tells us. It does not bring about a righteous life. In fact, I would say, suggest that anger is the antithesis of faith. Right? Because once I devolve to anger, I've really shut down. I've really said, you know what? What really matters is me, that I'm right. The gospel this morning says what? The first will become last. Jesus said we have to have a heart to be servants above all else. We have to have that ability to hear what's being said around us without responding from a position of anger. One reason our society seems to be addicted to anger, I believe, is that when I am angry, I become the victim. It's someone else's fault. Therefore, it is the other person or group that needs to change and not me. In this morning's reading from James chapter 3, he says we are, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. In chapter 1, verse 21, James says, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. If you'll notice, he says this right after that 20th verse, where he's talking about anger. He's not talking about all the things we might come to believe to be filthy, right, and unholy. James is saying that anger is filthy and unholy. He's saying, put away, put that away. Don't have anything to do with that. But be humble. I believe that humility and anger cannot occupy the same space. And I know for me, that's kind of where the Holy Spirit has been bringing me when I find myself angry. And I want you to understand that this is something God has been working out in me. Okay? While I try and have tried for many years to not be angry, it's something that can rise up in me very quickly. Whether it's I'm working on, on someone's car and it's not going right, right? So I start throwing tools or grumbling or somebody cuts me off on the freeway. Think of all the things. Or it's someone in my family or someone else not agreeing with me. And God has been working this out in me. That He has given me and asked me to have a heart of thanksgiving in all things. To be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It doesn't mean that anger will never come. But I must first of all as a Christian be thankful for all that God has done for me and for us. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, we read this. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now that is a strong... First of all, that is a very strong command. There's not a whole lot of places in Scripture where it actually tells us, here's God's will for you, right? That's something... Does everybody want to do God's will for them? 
Do you pray for that sometimes? God, show me your will for my life. Show me what it is you would have me to do. Well, here's a place in Scripture where Paul's saying, for every Christian, here's God's will for you. Doesn't say anything about being angry. Doesn't say anything about getting even. Doesn't say about anything about making sure that everyone hears your point. It says what? Be joyful. Pray continually and give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you. That's amazing. And no matter what's going on in my life, no matter what I hear going on in the world around me, social media, on the news, and I don't know about any of you, but for some of us that listen like to the radio or to the news and we care about things like politics and kind of the direction our country is going, <laughs> that can provoke one to anger quite quickly, right? Especially sometimes you hear some of the things that are being said and done. Well, guess what? Paul's saying our response is to be joyful, to pray continually, and to give thanks in all things, in all circumstances. So maybe, maybe, just maybe, we're not supposed to join that chorus sometimes, right? Because it's so easy to do that. Something to think about. <laughs> yeah. I want to... One of the things that God has put on my heart probably the last six months is I've been doing a lot of reading of biographies of brothers and sisters in the Lord who have come before us. I think what I wanted to see, how, how do they deal with the times they were living in? And how do they deal with the stuff that they had to go through? And one of the things that strikes me is how very much we have to be thankful for. We live in a world, especially in the United States of America, no matter what's going on around us, we live in a world of abundance and comfort when you look at the rest of history. Unbelievably so. We actually have no reason to be angry, to be quite honest, for all that we have, even for those of us that don't have much. I want to look at two folks very, very quickly. Kind of, this will kind of be how I end my, the word that I have for us this morning. The first one is a lady by the name of Maria Skoptsova. Have you ever heard, you may ever heard of her? She actually will become known as Saint Maria of Paris. But she was not always that. She was born in the late 1800s to wealthy parents in the Ukraine, okay? And um, she was a poet. She did a lot of things. In fact, at one point in time, she was a mayor of a town. She was also twice divorced. She very, very much enjoyed drinking and smoking cigarettes. The hard thing is, she lived most of her young life, her late teens and early 20s, right in the midst of the Russian Revolution. And let me tell you, that was not a good place to be. That was not a good place to be. So the first thing is, she lost everything. She lost all of her status, she lost everything, because if you were a have during that period of time, and what the Soviet Union, or what Russia was going through, they simply took everything. And the government took it, doled out whatever they wanted to, used the rest of it for the government. And so she ends up losing everything. In fact, at one point, she has to bury her own daughter because of an illness that probably shouldn't have killed her, but because there was no health care. 
And she had a choice to make. She had every reason to be angry, to be bitter with God. But Maria chose in that moment, she felt God putting a burden on her heart, one, to be thankful of His love for her. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Eucharist, right? Eucharist simply means thanksgiving. The very pinnacle of our worship this morning is what the Orthodox Church calls the Great Thanksgiving. And that's what we're going to participate in in a few minutes. And in that liturgy, we are reminded as the church that Christ died for us. That His blood was poured out, His body was broken, so that we might be free from our sins. So that we might, to use the term, that we might be saved from ourselves. And from the reality of what our brokenness and our fallenness will bring us. It seems to me that we can never come into this place without thanksgiving on our lips. But it doesn't end there, does it? Because Jesus promised that if we eat His body and drink His blood, that He will abide in us and we will abide in Him. The deacon will extinguish these two candles, or the subdeacon will extinguish these two candles when we leave. They represent the light of Christ. When He does that, He's not saying, hey, the light of Christ is out, so go home, because Christ has now left. What He's actually doing is saying, the light of Christ is not here any longer. The light of Christ is in you. Because you've received the body and blood of Jesus. Go out into the world being thankful for what God has done for you. And so I'm really starting to believe that that position of anger, which our world seems so glad to hold on to, cannot be a part of who we are as Christians. If we are authentic, that authentication means we go out into the world in thanksgiving because Christ died for us. He gave everything for us. That we no longer have to walk through this world alone, but that we might walk through this world in Him and He in us. Amen? That was the choice that Maria had to make. Maria became an incredible woman of God. God gave to her a heart for all that were suffering. And in fact, she would eventually have to flee to Paris to escape the persecution that was going on in Russia. And she would not only become a nun, but she would minister to the poor, all of those that were fleeing out of Russia and everything that was going on there. She would start homes for them, start food pantries, all of the things that were needed. It said that a lot of times she would go without food so that she might serve others. Now let me tell you, she was unorthodox. A bishop that saw her once wrote this of her. I was simply staggered when I saw her for the first time in monastic clothes. I was walking along the boulevard Montrepace and I saw in front of a cafe on the pavement there was a table and on the table there was a glass of beer and behind the glass of beer was sitting a Russian nun in full monastic robes. So she definitely said that she liked, she wore men's shoes because they were the only thing that were comfortable for her. She was, she was a character and she was not really accepted by her church. She was not accepted by the world or by the church. And yet, 
she gave thanks in all things, and she chose to serve God how He put on her heart through His Holy Spirit. Amazing. Amazing. After her death, Father Michael Placone would write, Mother Maria's life points us to a fundamental reality, namely, that Christians' commitment is not primarily to a heritage, to structures of the past, nor even to visions of what the future should be. Rather, each Christian, monastic, cleric, or layperson, is called to real life, life in the church and in the world as we find it, an encounter with God, oneself, and our neighbor in need. Maria's story didn't end in Paris. Um, for those of us that know our history in 1940, Paris will fall to the Nazi Germany, right? Um, she will take, be taken prisoner. She will be sent to Ravensbrück uh, concentration camp where she will live the last five years of her life. The fascinating thing is, even in that concentration camp, it is said of her that she was never downcast. That she had always a heart of thanksgiving. She read daily the gospel to her fellow prisoners. She would sneak food to those that were suffering and malnourishment was very, very common in the prison camps. And most of the time, people that live in those kind of conditions kind of revert to being animals, right? Just simply trying to survive, taking whatever. Again, she would go days without eating. She would smuggle whatever little bit of food was given her to, to bring it to those that she knew were really struggling with hunger or not doing well. It is said when someone would have to spend, would have the ability to spend some time with her where she could pray for them and maybe give them counsel or just hear them, the person would come out from that meeting simply being radiant from their time with Mother Maria. What a testimony. What a testimony. On March 30th, 1945, Mother Maria was led to the gas chambers. It is said that she went in the place of someone who was so distraught she simply said, let me, let me take their place. She was quite old now and of frail, frail health herself. But she willingly went to her death with the praise of God on her lips. Second person that I would like to conclude with is somebody from our own backyard. And a lot of times I know I learned about Rosa McCauley, who would become Rosa Parks, um, kind of living in California, and we were told how brave she was, and that she had gone on this bus to sit in the, in the white-only section as a, as a means of protest. Uh, that actually wasn't the story at all. I didn't realize that. The Rosa Parks was just simply a good, Christian, authentic Christian woman who lived her faith. She actually didn't go on that bus to protest at all. And in fact, she wasn't even sitting in the white-only section. She was actually sitting in the section that, quote, the law required her to sit in. But evidently, 
the law required not only did black folks have to sit in the back of the bus, but if they were sitting in the back of the bus and a white person wanted that seat, they had to give that seat up. Now Rosa had just worked a 12-hour shift. She was a seamstress and did some other things for like a clothing store. She was simply tired and she was sitting in the back of the bus when the bus began to fill up. And the bus driver, who had basically almost deputy, had almost been deputized because of the way the laws were and segregation, told her to get up. And she didn't. And she was arrested. Now the fascinating thing was, there were a group of people, they were looking for a case for someone that was basically a good person that they could use as a case to fight against segregation. That's exactly what they did. But the amazing thing about Rosa is, she wouldn't even play their game. They wanted her to say that the police had abused her, had said things. She simply said they did not. They did not. In fact, when she asked the, the police that arrested her, she asked, why are you doing this? And he simply said to her, ma'am, I don't know. It is just the law. But Rosa knew that it was un, an unjust law. She knew that it was wrong, but she knew that if she was going to fight this, she had to do it by faith. Rosa will later write that her favorite song growing up was the 27th Psalm, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Although she was saddened by what she saw and experienced, she never gave up being thankful to the Lord. In her book, Quiet Strength, Rosa wrote, As a child, I learned from the Bible to trust God and not be afraid. I felt the Lord would give me the strength to endure whatever I had to face. Whatever she had to face, she gave thanks. Whatever she had to face, the Lord was her strength and her salvation. She did not come, even in the face of injustice, from a position of anger or jealous envy that James talks about today. She came from a position of a servant, a servant of the Lord. And I believe that the Lord ordained her to go through the things that she went through that our country might slowly change. Amen? But I suggest to you today... When we come from a position of anger and bitterness, we really can't hear the Holy Spirit. And we really can't use, be used of God. As Christians, God's will for us is to be joyful, to pray always, and to give thanks in all things. In all things, give thanks. When anger comes as it surely will, lay it down and walk by faith. It is a choice that each and every one of us can make. C.S. Lewis once wrote to his dear friend Don Giovanni, We ought to give thanks for all fortune, if it is good, because it is good, if it is bad, because it works in us patience, humility, and the contempt of this world, and the hope of an eternal country. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 
We do give you thanks and praise. Chiefly because of all that you have done for us and all that you continue to do. May we, when we are faced with times of aggravation or harsh words, may we, like your servant James instructs, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Lord, may we always know that you abide in us and we in you. May our faith be authentic to the world around us by the praise and thanksgiving on our lips. To the glory of your name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.